Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 82 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the caller ID episode of the SLS Cast because when you do star 82, you can use that to unblock your caller ID for phones that block anonymous incoming calls. Not that anybody's ever going to use that, but there you go just in case you need it. And with that little bit of landline knowledge, I, of course, am your long-suffering host, Matt. A landline? What's that? I know, right? What kind of old technology is is our corded phones? You know, I've actually got an actual rotary phone. You do? At home? The old-fashioned, yes. Because, and this is actually useful knowledge, if... There is actually one reason to still, in this day and age, maintain a landline. For tension? Is that, I'm sorry? For tension? Like, really tense tense moments? Sure, sure. Um, landlines are actually very useful in the event of power outages. Because if you have a true landline, and you have yourself one of the old-style rotary phones... They actually run the electricity that it takes to generate dial tone is also enough to power the phone. So you can pick it up and be on the phone when your power's out. Oh. Well, and I did not calls know that. and receive calls and yeah. yeah. Well, good to know. I I'm wondering when the hipsters of our life will it will somehow start making rotary cell phones popular, you know? <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that popular adage for hipster peer pressure. Come on, man. Nobody's doing it. Until everybody's doing it. And then nobody is. Yes. Oh, man. I need to, I need to order some more hemp. I need to get some more hemp. Let me, let me call them my brand new rotary phone. We're one step away. I mean, they've actually got mini USB-powered origi- you know, good old-fashioned corded handsets. So that you you take it with a mini USB, you plug it into your phone, and then you've actually got a physical handset phone with the with the nice little spirally cord and everything. Really? To use. Mm-hmm. Wow. I had no idea. Really, really. Wow. Can we get our own like custom customized SLS cast phone? Maybe with like a big SLS cast as like the the unit itself? Or maybe the spirally cord <laughs> spells out SLS. It could be cool. Oh, ooh, that that would be pretty spiffy. Merchandise. We need to get into be... a merchandise for the show. Yeah, yeah, merchandising would be amazing. Yeah, some koozies. But, you know, we have to have somebody that would be willing to buy our merchandise first. Yeah, well, we need to get somebody to listen to the show first. True. That would be helpful. I'm Tim, by the way. Oh, yeah. Did we do that thing again where you haven't said your name? No, I, I make minutes? it a point not to do it until about four minutes into the show, so it can be one random... <laughs> so this way, like, yes, in case they didn't know, now you've got people hanging on, and you can get them into the, you know, wait, well, who's the other guy? What's this other guy's... Oh, it's Tim. That would probably drive someone with OCD crazy. See, we could only wish we had listeners that were that, you know, intentive listening, 
to the show, you know, that were that interested in it. Like, you have to know who is speaking, what their name is, what they are doing. Maybe us telling everybody about our boring lives for the first ten minutes of the show will help save some lives. It's entirely possible. Although, if we're going to do it for the show, we need to figure out a way to get the website to do that. So you click on the website, and you and it brings the webpage up, and then it says, The SLS cast with Matt, and then four minutes later, and Tim pops up. Well, I mean, that would require some you know, knowledge of building a website and doing cool things like that. <laughs> Indeed. Uh but what's been going on in your world, sir? Um, not much, not much. Uh, there is something that I wanted to tell you about that kind of kind of goes along with the Eva Green poster. Uh, but it's not movie news. It's more so TV news, though it can also tie into Guillermo del Toro as well. You know, he's doing a FX miniseries of Stephen King's The Strain. I don't know, have you been seeing like the promos for it, like at the movie theater or? Maybe I have not. I did uh, hear about that recently that uh, Guillermo del Toro was doing that, but no, I had not actually seen any of the uh, previews for it or anything. So yeah, it's very Sweet. stylized. It's very much like his movies, you know, like over the top violence. It's supposed to be an R-rated TV show. I mean, that's how they're they're billing it. Well, in L.A., within the past week, they decided to put up all these billboards and promo posters and the bus stops and in the subway and just all over the place, these strain posters. And the poster of it has gotten a lot of, a lot of slack. A lot of people have been saying that it's too violent, it's too horrific, or, and it, it's just plain gross. And so FX has to go through and take down some of the posters and key neighborhoods and replace it with a different poster and the poster that it the original poster showed a close-up of a woman's uh, of a woman's face it's mainly just her two eyes you can kind of see her nose and her lips and all that stuff but however with one eyeball you see going in her skin it looks like a worm on the inside of her skin and then coming out of her eyeball is the worm and you see it. It's right there. It's so close up. It's not like it's far away. It's close up. You see the eyeball coming out of her eye. It's bloody, and it's just really gross. And you see a, a like a, a medical glove, a hand glove thing, like coming out and pulling on it. And it's pretty. It's pretty crazy that uh, I, like they're, they're wanting to push boundaries in order to promote. A movie that they're going as far as to doing something called shock value for these posters. However, they're putting a lot of like kids at risk. I have a cousin who is very sensitive towards violent images. He would be bothered if he if he if he saw these. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Matt? Do you think this is something that is just you know it's whatever? It's just the sign of the times, or do you think that it is something that is going a little too far? I'm going to go with the former. We're getting to a point now where, again, uh, it was like we were talking about, uh, what was it, last week or the week before last, when we were talk- when we had kind of gotten into the discussion and, and I was referring to the drifting, to the divergence in theater-going cinema versus really good dramatic content that you would find on cable. And I think this is where we're going. That's why you see shows like Orange is the New Black and, you you know, Hemlock Grove, even though that one sucked, but whatever. Uh, you know, you've got all these shows that are 
uh, True Blood, all these shows that are really ultra-violent, really ultra-sex, really ultra-everything. And more and more you're finding them on cable. They're going to television. They're going the, that way. I just think that that's how this is going to play out. I don't necessarily think that it should have to go that way, but that's the beauty of TV and 700,000 channels. I meant the poster, the advertisement. Oh, the advertisement. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, no, it's okay. No, uh, again, same thing. Yeah. With, with, uh, with, with posters for TV are going to be more than posters for, are, are more readily available in a different way than posters at the movie theater. So, yeah, I still think it's probably just the way it's going. Don't necessarily think it should have to be that way, but just, I, yeah, I think it's the way it's going. Sign of the times. So how about in in Houston? Anything crazy, over-the-top, popping up on the freeways over there? Burning crosses or anything like that? Nah. No. Too too early in the year for that? Yeah, still, still, you know, for whatever it's worth. I mean, there's still too kind of Bible Belt-ish over here. Yeah. So that was it? Just, you know, just the movie poster or just the poster controversy thing? That was the only thing that was interesting for you yeah. this last week? I, I got a job, but I am I think it would be... I, I can't say where and what, but I got a it's, job. It's it's porn. It's <laughs> I, NSA porn. That's, that's, that's the job. It is. I'm a fluffer. <laughs> that's my job. I... <laughs> I'm going to try to carry it on to to the show. I'm, I'm going to try to fluff, be the fluffer of podcasting. Outstanding. Not too sure what all that entails, but... Well, I'm sure the the good folks at the NSA will fill you in. That's right. I'm a secret agent, guys. I'm actually... <laughs> I, I'm Gary Coleman. He is not dead. I am Gary Coleman. I never would have guessed that. I am. What an amazing secret agent you are. I know. I'm fantastic. Well, let's see. The only thing that really interesting last week was my birthday. Had my birthday on Friday, and um, went out Friday night, and then went out again on Saturday night because hey, you know, birthdays on the weekends only come once every six to seven years, depending on leap years and all that good stuff. Yeah. And I got some cool stuff. My wife uh, and daughters made me an awesome dinner. And my favorite cake, I'm a very simple guy, yellow cake, chocolate frosting. It's just amazing. It's my favorite kind of cake. But this dinner is this uh, spicy Romano chicken thing. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. And so that was dinner. And then it came, and then they gave me four new Blu-rays. So I've got the 40th anniversary of Blazing Saddles. I got The Heat. I got Django Unchained. And, oh, this is the end. It's a very eclectic group of Blu-rays. Yes, yes. But the crowning achievement of presents of gift-giving this birthday season was, in fact, a $200 bottle of Crown Royal. Really? That I don't know what I'm supposed to do with because I don't want to drink a $200 bottle of liquor. But Yeah, you don't want to mix it with anything either. Right, and you can't, yeah, you can't mix it with anything. I mean, who the fuck is going to take $200 whiskey and then put it, mix it with Coke? I mean, well, how big is the bottle? Is it a... So it's just a fifth. It's really? a Crown Royal Extra Rare. The final batch of rare whiskeys from, this particular one is from the LaSalle Distillery, which is now closed. 
And it's not purple either, it's blue. So you get this awesome blue box with this amazing, it's not like the cheap crushed velvet blue, you know, the uh, purple bag that you get with crown. No, it's like this really, really nice velvet, blue velvet bag. And then just this badass bottle inside of it. So it's, it's sitting in the bottle, in the bag, in the box, and the box is in a protective sleeve. I'm, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with this. Just invite people over to look at it. I did. I took it to work and showed it people at work. I had people come over for steaks on Sunday. Did a, I made some? I made really made my famous ribeyes, and uh, I was like, "Look at this awesome bottle of whiskey that I'm never gonna open. Isn't it great?" And yeah, so that was courtesy of my buddy Rob and his girlfriend. Eleanor. So shout outs to y'all. Thank you for like one of the best birthday gifts ever. So my my yeah. text message to you wasn't enough? Jeez. If it was a $200 text message, then absolutely, dude. Best text message ever. It could have. I could have maybe, I don't know, got hit. <laughs> Sent it. You could have like just kept sending it and resending it and resending it until, you know, you hit data overages <laughs> or something for $200. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> And that's when you realize after the 500th time sending it that you have unlimited data. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, man. All right. Well, it seems that we have killed way more than the normal allotted time for BSing at the beginning of the show. Shall we go ahead and get to the good stuff? Let's do it. All right, folks. Here we go. It is the news. The news! Alright, I'm going to go first this time, just because, why not? Uh, First up, the 1st of July, 2014. From FilmDivider.com, courtesy of Charles Madison. John Turturro seeking permission to make a film with his big Lebowski character, Jesus Quintana. Of course, he would say, Jesus. Because no one fucks with the Jesus. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Coen brothers have never made a sequel to any of their films, so they did just let Noah Hawley do that with the Fargo TV series. Back in 2011, Tara Reid told some tall tale about a Big Lebowski 2 being in the works, but she seems to have been either pulling everyone's legs or boiled as an owl or both. But seemingly straight and honest is John Turturro, who had told an audience at the Taylor... I'm sorry here, Terramina Film Festival, that he'd like to make a new film with his big Lebowski character, the infamous pederast, Jesus Quintana. The Hollywood Reporter relayed just this one part of Totoro's comment on their piece from the fest. Quote, if I can get the permission I need, I'd like to return to that role. End quote. What do you think, Tim? Are you excited to even think that this might be a possibility? Because... I I am would love something like this. I think that the world is ripe. We're near 20 years after we're like 16 years after the Big Lebowski and I think it would be really fun to revisit this guy. I don't know. It's definitely something that I I it, I mean John Turturro is a really good actor and he's a very passionate performer 
And I could totally see He would see also him. be directed. Oh, he wants to, oh, he wants to direct yeah. it. Yes. Uh, oh. I forgot to mention. He would also be directing this. They expect that if he can get the permissions, they'll film it next year. Really? And did yeah. he write a script for it? They did not say whether or not he wrote the script. or But he wants to direct it and star in it. And apparently the article was intimating that it's not up to the Coen brothers. They seem to want him to be able to do it, but the permissions that he's needing do not are not coming from them. They need to come from, I guess, whoever might own the rights, the rights specifically to the big... Lebowski. Well, I mean, what makes so. the characters fantastic was... I mean, other than the performance, it took the Coen brothers' direction, camera movement, and the, the movie itself. And the setup of that character was fantastic, and that's what made his character... And I think another way, reason why his character was so good and memorable, because he was in the movie for not that long of a time. I mean... Got less than a minute. I don't know. Like, everything kind of has to align perfectly, I think, for him to really pull this off. But then, I don't know. I, if, I, I don't know if he's trying to go uh, into or go with the Coen Brothers style, or if he's wanting to, to, to make a, a whole different, like, tone and... You know, feeling to the character in a in a in, in a different movie. True, true. I, and again, I mean, we're still kind of up in the air. They this may never happen, but I personally would love to see it. I'm a big John Turturro fan. With him directing it, I think that it would be definitely in the proper spirit of what the Coen Brothers would want. But we we should have we would have to then see. So who knows? All right, what do you got, sir? Lay it on us. All right, from a HollywoodReporter.com article entitled John Cleese, James Bond Franchise Sacrificed Humor to Win Asia Markets. And this is what it says. Quote, The audiences in Asia are not going for the subtle British humor or the class jokes, said the British comedy legend who appeared in two Pierce Brosnan Bond films. John Cleese, founding member of Monty Python, has taken aim at one of the UK's most beloved film franchises, James Bond. The 74-year-old actor said that he believed that the Bond films had sacrificed their signature English wit in order to pander to the booming movie markets of Asia. In an interview with the UK's Radio Times magazine, Cleese said that, I did two James Bond movies. And then I believe that they decided that the tone they needed was that of the Bourne action movies, which are very gritty and humorless. Also, the big money was coming from Asia, from the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, where the audiences go to watch the action sequences. And that's why, in my opinion, the action sequences go on for way too long. And it's a fundamental flaw. The audiences in Asia are not going for the subtle British humor or the class jokes. In quotes. And I'll just end it there. What do you think, Matt? Is there any truth to what he's saying? I mean, it's I mean, look at what they're doing with Transformers. I'll get to Michael Bay in a second. But Michael Bay, John Cleese was right. In Asia, they want to see the action. It's an American movie, so it's going to have fantastic action. It's going to have fantastic special effects. They don't want to see these actors acting. They want to see them running away from things on a green screen and, you know, and explosions that are not really there and all that stuff. So, therefore, they're not going to get the humor and the funny jokes and the witty jokes. 
And uh, and I I mean personally I agree with him. I think that that is definitely something that has been sacrificed, and I would like to see more. Well, I would have to say that to a certain extent he is correct, but in this particular instance, it was a necessary cut. It was a necessary evil because I really think that the tone that the Bond franchise has taken the shift has completely reinvigorated it because in order to keep things funny and light to a certain degree you had to kind of laugh at yourself a little bit and parody what the franchise was about and you would see it build upon itself over and over and over again until eventually the series would crash I mean granted this is definitely a film franchise that has been able to, like a phoenix, rise from the ashes, but usually in a cyclical manner. Here they've gotten something that they've done very well, and I don't know that it was necessary just in order to simply cater to the market or to bring a, a higher degree of sophistication to something that needed just that kind of a shot in the arm. Well, and I think that's what they they brought the sophistication back with Skyfall. Because I I definitely think they went back down the wrong path with Quantum of Solace. Because to me, that was definitely more of a Bourne movie than a Bond movie with the shaky cam and a whole lot of running. That's kind of like how I sum up Quantum of Solace is a lot of running away. But, uh, and even like with Skyfall, beautiful movie. And it goes back to the classic Bonds, which I really like. But I remember the one... uh, I mean, there were a few complaints I had about the movie, but one of the main one was that, yes, Daniel Craig was more likable in this one. Like, he had more of a personality. But I'm hoping with the next one, since Sam Mendes will be doing the next James Bond movie, he'll he'll have more of, like, the, the cheekiness that kind of came out of him more so at the end of the movie you know when he you know when they're, when they when they finally established the classic James Bond office and money penny and the whole thing with his coat Well yeah but and, they they concluded a story arc with well yeah Skyfall as well Right and I really think that that's one thing that everybody refuses to acknowledge about Quantum of Solace is that For the first time, really and truly for the first time, they took a real story and played it out James Bond style. I I know that people were were against the shaky cam. I know that oh it's the running and the but I mean it's the it's the heartbreak that drives the whole plot. It's everything that runs through that story is him working out everything that happened to him at the end of Casino Royale. Well, okay, it could be good it could be a good story. It just was poor filmmaking. Ah, well. This isn't about whether or not we like Quantum of Solace. We're way off. <laughs> <laughs> we are way off task here. I think that it was a necessary evil in this particular instance, but I do agree with John Cleese as well that they are that there are certain instances where they are sacrificing um good writing and for more intense action that will play better to a more international audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there and again, 
that's where they're making money now. So. Right, and, and also yeah, yeah. I, I like how he says how it's you know Bond is a British car- uh, camera, <laughs> it's a British character, and I I think it it says something that Bond is now becoming. I think it, it, it's slowly uh, before Skyfall. I think it was slowly moving away from it being a British, you know, ha- being a British staple and becoming more of a of an American staple. You know, because that's another way of of looking at it. Sure, I would definitely say it's totally fair to say that while it is, uh, there is no denying that Bond is British, but Bond was not co-opted, but adopted by American audiences. And I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing at all. A lot of people with the new Transformers movie has been or have been complaining about it. it has a 19% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not good. Uh, Matt was talking about right, it. It's actually it's rotten. It's not, it's not a fresh rating until it hits 60%. Oh, then the movie is 19% rotten. And... During an MTV interview, he was asked, you know, what does he think that, I mean, fanboys, fan people, people that love the first Transformers movie, even, you know, whatever other Transformers movie, which, I, aren't they all basically the same movie? But uh, but people really do not like the new one. Like what Matt was talking about last week, it's really long, action, action, action. And this is what he had to say. He said, quote, They love to hate, and I don't care. Let them hate. They're still going to see the movie. I think it's good to get a little tension. Very good. I used to get bothered by it, but I think it's good to get the dialogue going. It makes me think, and it keeps me on my toes. So it's good. End quotes. I'm glad to hear that Michael Bay is willing to give up making a quality movie for the sake of getting the dialogue flowing. Oh, well. Okay, well then, to go in with all the wonderful stuff about action movies and stuff. From SlashFilm.com, courtesy of Russ Fisher, Pacific Rim 2 set for 2017. It's official! The Pacific Rim sequel is coming. Pacific Rim 2 has been set for a 2017 release, which Universal will bring to theaters. Additional... Additionally, Guillermo del Toro says he's also developing an animated Pacific Rim show that will debut before the film's sequel. Uh, this is, uh, they're linking from BuzzFeed, and they say that Legendary offers this info. Guillermo del Toro returns to direct Legendary Pictures Pacific Rim 2, the next chapter of the epic action adventure he created with 2013's hit original film. Zach Penn will write the script with del Toro. Legendary's Thomas Tull and John Jashney once again produce alongside del Toro, Mary Parent, and Callum Green. Jillian Sher will executive produce. Universal Pictures will release the film worldwide in 3D and IMAX 3D. Uh, apparently, April seventh, twenty seventeen, is the official release date. Excited? Yeah, uh, I, I think it'll be pretty cool. I've liked his other sequel to Hellboy, and I like how it was significantly different from the first Hellboy. So, I'm excited to see what he does with Pacific Rim because I think when you just look at Pacific Rim, at least for me, it's kind of difficult to see. Well, where what what other stories can you tell? To where the sequel is not going to be exactly like the first movie, but I'm thinking I'm thinking you can pull off something something pretty good and equally, if not more, so entertaining. 
Well, yay, yay, yay. All right, sir, what's next for you? Okay, so I talked about last week that Seth Rogen and James Franco is in a little little bit of hot water with North Korea, especially Kim Jong-un. And some of the stuff I was talking about was pretty, I guess, lighthearted. You know, Kim Jong-un, you know, was going to watch the movie, but he didn't like it. He was shaking his little finger, and, and he actually put... Seth Rogen and James Franco on his personal kill list. This is from an article, a cinemablend.com article, entitled, North Korea Threatens Retaliation Over Seth Rogen's The Interview. And it says this, If there's anything that Hollywood excels at generating these days, it's certainly controversy. Interest groups, ethnicities, genders, and even nations have all at one point or another taken to the news media and internet message boards boards in the quest to decry the latest wrong the town of Tinsel has visited upon them. However, rarely, if ever, will you see someone threatening to start a war over a film's controversy. So naturally, who better to do it just than North Korea's foreign ministry, who apparently blew a gasket when they saw recently released trailer to the Seth Rogen James Franco action comedy The Interview. Yahoo, among other worldwide news feeds, reported on North Korea's official remarks, which were made in response to the film that's main premise is sending in a journalist and his crew to assassinate the North Korean head of state, Kim Jong-un. Through an official statement, the North Korean foreign ministry had said this, The act of making and screening such a movie that portrays an attack on our top leadership is a most wanton act of terror and act of war, and is absolutely intolerable. The ministry would have the U.S. ban the film from ever being shown, or else they would retaliate with a, quote, resolute and merciless response. End all quotes there. So... That's pretty exciting. And just to throw in there real quick, another Hollywood Reporter article entitled Five Films Before the Interview That Were Condemned by North Korea. And these films were 007, Die Another Day. The beginning of it takes place in North Korea. Uh, The villains are North Koreans. Team America, World Police. I was very surprised at that one. I cannot think about why Kim Jong's would be so upset with Team America World Police. Uh, maybe they're just very ronery. I don't know. Uh, the Red Chapel from 2010. And then finally, Red Dawn from 2012. And Olympus Has Fallen from last year. And those were the five movies that were condemned in North Korea. And the ever-continuing saga of The Willy Won't He from Brian Singer. According to HitFix.com, courtesy of Gregory Elwood... Fox says Brian Singer will return to direct X-Men Apocalypse. As in, what lawsuit? Alright, now, Fox president of production Emma Watts told The Hollywood Reporter in a wide-ranging interview that Singer would return despite the legal issues. Except, she doesn't really say that. These are the actual quotes. Watts told the trade magazine the following things, quote, Right now, we are totally at the outlining phase, but nothing would make me happier than if it all worked out. It's always been the intention for him to do it. End quote. Now, what that says is, 
Right now, they'd like for him to be the director, but they're still hedging their bets. I guess that's just kind of the most political way to say it, but that's not exactly he's in. I would imagine that just like we talked about last week, there's probably still that one holdout, the lone executive holdout. And I would assume that there is probably a secession plan already in place. But I wish they'd just come out once and for all and say, yes, we're behind this guy 100%, not. Well, right now, we hope that everything is all honky-dory because we always wanted him to do it. That's not, yes, he's doing it. So, take from that what you will. That's going to go ahead and close out my news for this week. Um, I'm going to do two pieces of news. One of them is really quick. First up, we just watched him, and this is kind of sad. We just watched him in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Eli Wallach passed away at the age of 98. This is from a CinemaBlend.com article written by... Christy Puchko, and it says that Variety reports that Eli Wallach died at 98, leaving the world where he came in. His hometown of New York City, Wallach leaves behind an incredible legacy that includes films like Sergio Leone's classic spaghetti western, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, John Sturge's beloved The, Man- the Magnificent Seven, Eli, or uh, Elia Kazan's Tennessee Williams scripted drama Baby Doll, William Wyler's charming rom-com How to Steal a Million, and Francis Ford Coppola's gangster epic The Godfather Part 3. End quotes. It's sad. Yeah, fantastic actor. Uh, for those of you who still have no idea who he is, if you enjoy chick flicks, Kate Winslet or Jude Law... He was in the movie The Holiday that came out in, what, 2006, 2007? He was that. He played the old Hollywood screenwriter guy. If you don't know him, check out The Magnificent Seven as well as The Good, The Bad, and Ugly. He is phenomenal. Phenomenal. And lastly for me, okay, so the next, the revolution of trying to get more people to the movie theaters to watch these movies to... You know, to to reel them in, to make you a part of the movie. Well, that was supposed to be 3D's job. Well, it turns out 3D is not enough. We want the seats to move. That's why in, in Texas, there's D-Box. Matt knows D-Box. D-Box, uh, your, your seat moves. It's usually a couple D-Box seats in, the, in a big theater amongst people that are not writing the film. Uh, which I guess could be kind of annoying for those sitting right next to the D-Box seats or who are in regular seats, you know, just seeing you move around and have fun and you're just, like, sitting there because you can't afford the $15 surcharge. Anyways, uh, they needed something more so than that. And so they created 4D. That is right, 4D. And it's in my town, so who knows if I ever go see... Transformers, the new Transformers movie, I might shovel shovel out the $28 to go see this damn movie. But uh, let me tell you a little bit more about it. It's from thehollywoodreporter.com, entitled, LA Live's new 4DX theater has a whole lot of shaking going on. And it says this, This weekend, Regal LA Live Stadium 14 in downtown Los Angeles opened its first 4DX theater from the Seal... 4D company CJ4D Plex, 
The theater is currently playing Transformers Age of Extinction in the 4D format, meaning that in addition to a real D3D theater installation, each seat in the 104-seat auditorium is designed to tilt, shake, and vibrate in time with what is happening on screen. The system also is designed to spray you with water, blow air in your face, and even release fog and scents into create a 4D experience. And for anyone who doesn't want to have to keep drying their 3D glasses, there is a water on-off button on each seat. During a press presentation on June 26, a screening of Captain America the Winter Soldier provided the audience with the sensation of being at sea during a scene that takes place on a ship. With the seat suddenly jerking during the action sequences and among the more subtle uses of the movement, a gentle seat tilt that followed a tilting camera move. It's effectively a mix between a movie-going experience and a ride at a theme park. Many will no doubt find the 4D experience to be a lot of fun, and signaling early interest during its first weekend at LA Live, all 15 performances of Transformers sold out. Still, anyone easily affected by motion sickness might think twice, especially when considering a film longer than two hours. End all quotes. Matt, is this something that uh, you're into? Do you enjoy this 4D experience, or is it more of like a distraction than really anything else? If someone was going to let me do it for free, I would probably do it. But under no circumstances would I pay for it. Yeah, not even the $26.80 surcharge. No, literally. I mean, because the shaking and stuff is kind of cool. I'm not going to lie. Like I said, I went and did the for the D-Box thing. And that's basically all this is. It's just glorified D-Box. Uh, and I did it for uh, Live Free or Die Hard. And, right? Was that the most recent one? Sure. Sure, why not? Whatever. The most recent Die Hard one. And it was cool. But it's not worth paying for. It's not that good. So, if someone was going to... Uh, if, if I could do it for free, I would do it. But no, this yeah, I, this does not interest me in the slightest, and I would not pay for it at all. That's right. You want to be in the fog. I want to be one with the fog, one with the mist. I really want to go. I'd pay the money to go see Nymphomaniac in 4DX. <laughs> Better be careful before they start doing things like you know spraying liquids in your face during a orgasm scene or something yeah that would really or you know get you that smell of the sex in the air for movies like that Mm. that would actually probably be like a turn on for some people though so maybe they shouldn't do that you all right are we done yes (laughs) it got awkward fast yeah, it sure did. Yeah. We went down a dark, dark road. All right, so here we are, folks, closing off the news and moving on to Did It Age Well? This episode of Did It Age Well, we're going to be covering 1977's Saturday Night Fever, the dance film that basically made John Travolta a superstar. He was already a TV star, thanks to Mr. You know, Welcome Back Cotter and everything. But now he was like phenomenon with this movie. Uh, 
I mean, in, in 1977 dollars, this was a $3.5 million budget that got $237 million in box office receipts. Woo! Now, if you're really down for some fun, you could see the sequel, Staying Alive, which was directed by Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. But we're not yeah, doing what? that. What? How does that happen? Why does Sylvester Stallone, like, was he was he trying to surprise people in the 80s? But Staying Alive? Broadway? I'm just, Rocky? I'm, hey. John Tra- Dancing? I'm... Spandex, tight yeah. pants. Hey, you know, it takes all kinds, right? Remember, we're, we're talking about a guy. You know, we were talking about a a, 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 a or a a field, an industry field where someone can start off being an extra uh, in a TV western, become the man with no name, and then direct a movie about Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. So why not? Yeah. Well, I guess. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone learned how to fail earlier on than Clint Eastwood. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's entirely possible. Anyway, so back to the subject at hand. Saturday Night Fever, the movie, the 19, 1997, oh, good lord, 1977 dance movie that stars John Travolta as the 19-year-old Tony Monero, um, who was from rough part of Brooklyn. And he's got a very mundane existence, living with mom and dad, dead-end job in a paint store, and however, he lives the life one night a week, he gets to go out and he goes to the 2001 Odyssey Club, oh my god, just the names alone were amazing, the 2001 Odyssey Club, and he's the best dancer there, and it's basically just him, the story of him and his friends as they kind of deal with their life in the microcosm that is Brooklyn in the late 70s during the disco era. And it does kind of revolve around a dance competition, love, friendship, trust, rape, uh, murder, intrigue. No, it doesn't really do all that. There's no intrigue. But the question of this movie is, did it age well? Now, what I have to say to this, kind of, <laughs> because the what kills this movie is the subject matter. It nobody, I mean, this this movie both took advantage of and then unintentionally launched disco. And created an ultra craze that it was something that had been kind of rumbling around for a few years and then just created this ultra craze that burned so brightly so quickly that then boom, it was pushed out by like, you know, 82. And so when people think of this movie, all they think about is the disco. But the thing is, is that there's a lot of redeeming qualities to this movie. And it's a, the story is actually halfway decent. The filmmaking techniques, though, are really where this the, this movie shines. 
this there there's so many things that they do well all the framing devices all of the plot devices that they use in 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 harmony with the cinematography and the style in which the movie was shot really work and there are things that they don't do anymore and it's really kind of sad because you get to see a side of life and a style of life truly play out in its heyday and not just the disco stuff the way people really worked and the way people lived and how they actually you know deigned their existence in brooklyn in late in the late 70s and how they do these long establishing walks and all these framing shots that you have especially early on in the movie where like even the the infamous opening credits these are things that you just don't see anymore. A lot of the stuff now, these kinds of shots are always done in place. And they'll give you kind of like a, an, a, a, a long exterior shot, like an over, like from the, from a helicopter, from bird's eye view, so that you know you're in a bad area, but then just drop down for a single location shot if you're lucky. Here, they really took advantage of using streets and using a city's vibrancy and life to tell you this is what's going on and this is why these characters feel the way they do and and a lot of times why they act the way they act they, a lot of the desperation that comes from lower middle class life is played out in this in in Brooklyn and Brooklyn itself kind of becomes a character it's not just it's not just a place, it's a place you're trying to escape from. And that really provides just a wholly unique way of viewing this movie. So all of these things are really good and really are, are very interesting and make the movie really neat to watch. But then you come back to the fact of the subject matter of the movie, which really is disco and this kid who loves dancing and then the movie kind of rather it seems rather quickly because the first half of the movie is kind of setting up the second half of the movie which you would think is how a narrative should work but the problem is is that the second half of the movie just tends to go crazy you've got people trying to get out people getting raped people just you know wrong people getting revenge taken out on them people jumping off of bridges well not jumping per se uh but you know tons of bridge action and it just kind of seems to come from nowhere. Like the story was seemingly to, was trying to lead up to something. And you had all these disparate plot lines that needed to come back together. But when they come back together, it was, when they come back together, it was almost like a crash. And it's just kind of a jumbled mess. And then you're kind of like, say what? Uh, and it makes it really hard to, care about what happens to these people when you see these people behaving so badly by the end of the movie it's hard to find the, the redeeming qualities and then to think that it all especially the last seven eight minutes of the movie stems from a dance competition again you're kind of like really but that's kind of how it played out so I have to say 
Kinda. The movie has kind of aged well. From a technical standpoint and from a cinematic storytelling standpoint, it's really cool and really neat to see. And it's not something that necessarily had to be done away with. It's just kind of the way that media, that, that film has evolved. I don't want to necessarily say for the worse, but we could definitely use a little bit of going back to that. Story-wise, oh dear God, no, this movie has not aged well at all. So I'm going to go ahead and just say kind of. <laughs> That's the best I can do, and it took like eight minutes, so I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> what do you think? Did this movie age well, or what? Um, I could answer that, but I'm going to go on a little little rant before I, I answer that. Not I don't want to say rant, because like what Matt was saying, I definitely agree that technically this is a really good movie. I mean... Shit, man, you have one of the greatest soundtracks ever made that was number one for years until The Bodyguard took it out. It, 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 the Bodyguard became the number one best-selling album. Bee Gees, gotta love the Bee Gees. Daniel, all this music was phenomenal, and how they used the music for the dancing sequences, I'm not talking about the really crummy scene when John Travolta is whining and crying in the subway, and you have that really hammy, cheesy 70s BG song playing in the background. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when he's grooving it in the in the club at the disco and doing his dancing thing. And it is it's it's fantastic and shit, man. It's John Travolta when he's dancing. You have fun watching it, regardless of whatever if the movie has faults. All that goes away. All that gets pushed out of mind when the dancing happens. And everything that takes place in the club is beautifully shot. You know, the camera movement is great. It feels like you're there. It pulls you in. And that is definitely where this movie succeeds. And you can see how uh, it, it has inspired other movies. You look at uh, uh, Martin Scorsese's like Goodfellas and Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, you know, with with their club shots, you know, there's a lot of that in those movies. But those movies have definitely aged well, unlike Saturday Night Fever. More positive things before I go into the negative. Pop culture, okay? This movie was definitely a pop pop culture icon during the late 70s. It was revolutionary, and it set so many trends. Hairstyles. Uh, clothing, dancing, you know, all this stuff. I was watching a, uh, a documentary over it, actually a VH1 behind the music of this, and they were saying that there were there were judges and lawyers and uptight court people that have never bought a record that were out buying the Saturday Night uh, that were buying uh, Saturday Night Fever record. You know, they were buying the movie's record, and they were taking dancing classes. And so this movie inspired him to get, you know, get down, funky, and groovy. And that is what they were doing. Your barristers and, and whoever. And also, the movie, as well as its soundtrack, helped spread disco, you know, into the American suburbs, into American suburbia. You know, there, uh, it was mainly an underground thing, you know, in LA and New York. And this movie helped make it become a big thing. And one of the reasons that, that, I get why disco eventually went away, and it wasn't only the people, the disco sucks people that led to that started riots because they hated disco so much that they 
would beat up people and start a lot of trouble. They, they had album burnings because they hated disco so much. It was some crazy shit back in the day. Back in the, in the crazy 70s. The, the 70s weren't always groovy, you see. Not always groovy. And, um, and so also with this movie, you know, like I said, it set trends, hairstyles, dance moves. Everybody was going to disco, and it became too much. Like, you go to the disco, and you'd see five people dressed up like, uh, like Tony, like uh, John Travolta's character at the dance club. You go, you know, there's just so many people trying to replicate it because this movie became the, the disco movie. I mean, this movie defined disco. So it, it, it spawned a lot of, of people trying to copy it. And so it just became too much so fast that it kind of just imploded on itself and people were ready for the 80s. Although I don't think technically nobody was really ready for the 80s. And yet it happened. And what I said just kind of the demise of disco to me is kind of like how I feel towards this movie. And I'll get to that here in a second. Now, Tony Manero, John Travolta's character, is such an asshole in the movie that I hate him more than I find him to be likable or cheeky or charming or whatever. Because I know the whole point of him is that he's the Brooklyn badass he just loves to dance. You know, it's all about his hair, and he just loves to dance. And it's a little funny watching that now, because that type of that character, and if you make that type of character to now, that character would, would not be around. I mean, it would be completely different. You do not have anybody that obsesses with their hair and is a god on the dance floor and... Those people are not John Travolta. That that just can't happen now. And so whenever you watch the movie, and at the time when the movie came out, the movie was badass. I'm sure I would have loved it like everybody else. But you watch it now, it's just so much of that, that thought process or, or, of you, or so much of me thinking that, oh my god, this would not work now, and it doesn't work now, and it just seems more laughable than it was than it is being, oh, it's a character, you know, it's a part of the movie. It's obvious it's a sign of the times. It's a time capsule, you know, and I guess that's a problem with this movie being a time capsule of the 70s, is that it's a time capsule of the 70s. It doesn't really translate to now. Not saying that for a movie to age well that it has to translate, because I mean, you look at older movies, classic movies that I like from the 50s, really hammy sci-fi movies that I enjoy them now, well, hey, I kind of take that back, because if you look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 50s, that movie totally translates to now. I mean, minus the clothing, the some of the dialogue, and but then again, it's, it's still a really good movie, and it did age well. This movie, everything is such a time capsule of the 70s that unless you lived it, it just didn't age, age well at all. And it was the lifestyle that teenagers of the 70s wanted and strive for i mean that's why gene siskel of siskel and ebert loved the movie because that's who he wanted to be you know those are the people that he remembered and that's why he loved it i mean you look at some of the great reviews of this movie on uh rotten tomatoes most of them are from the older critics who are from that era or grew up were young during that time and they looked up to brothers sisters uh, they, they, the music itself, you know, that, that was something that they strive to be. I don't think anybody was ever really the disco, you know, that what, how they really represent disco back then. Maybe so. I don't know. 
And again, it's a time capsule of the 70s. It aged with the decade. Like the fashion from the 70s, I think the movie faded. It faded along with the fashion. Unlike the music, you know, I, I think the music definitely has last. Uh, you know, Saturday, you can listen to Saturday Night Fever and still get down and groovy with it now. And, uh, you know, I think that says a lot. Yes, it's an entertaining movie. However, when I watch it, I don't enjoy it nearly as much as I know a number of people do. So, with saying all that, I definitely think that this movie did not, by any means, age well at all. So, sounds like we both felt that the movie has redeeming qualities, but I'm giving it a kind of aged well because I'm willing to credit the things that it did well, and you are just saying that overall it's still not worth it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Only you t- we can decide. Next time on Did It Age Well. Next time? Next time, yeah. Next time on Did It Age Well. Staying alive. 19. 19- I'm just kidding. We're really out of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, last but not least, folks, it is now time for the movie. <laughs> folks so the movies this week were only god forgives we are what we are and trespass where do you want to start sir let's go with only god forgives all right 2013 danish french co-production this is an art house crime film uh english thai kind of combination here there's a whole bunch of fun stuff going on with uh ryan gosling and Kristen scott thomas Okay, so we've got uh, basically just a screwed up guy who runs a Muay Thai club in Bangkok. Um, it's a front for drug operation. He's got a equally screwed up brother that rapes and kills an underage prostitute. Is, you know, these are just real stand-up guys. And the brother is the, subsequently killed. And this kind of starts off a chain reaction of events between Ryan Gosling's character and his mother and the police lieutenant that uh, more or less supervised the killing of uh, Ryan Gosling's brother. This is one of those movies... This is one of the reasons why I think, personally, Art House gets a bad name. Because where Art House can truly succeed in blending genres and has a very unique ability to take things on a smaller budget and I'm not and I don't mean to say that in any kind of negative connotation and I don't mean the micro budgets like with the the FP or uh, the dirties I mean just standard smaller budgets for example this was a a 4.8 million dollar budget and one of, where, where Art House can succeed is that the story itself is usually something that is just so compelling that even when it tries to blend or bend genres, it's so unique that it draws you in. Unfortunately, it can also be so genre-bending or blending, depending on how you want to look at it, 
that it loses itself and becomes confusing and thus causing a lot of the, the, the ire that can be stoked when people think of art house cinema. For me, this is one of those films. Does that mean that all of film is like this? Of course not. But when you get bigger names, or and depending on how you want to look at it, I think Ryan Gosling's actually a really good actor. Um, more recognizable names, you tend to kind of let yourself be drawn in a little bit more quickly than you would otherwise. There's lots of dream sequence kind of things, vision sequence kind of things that, that this movie does. Uh, they are always violent in nature, and they're designed to kind of lead you into the, more or less into the soul of these characters, to see what's truly redeemable about them, if anything. Unfortunately, these scenes for me tended to just convolute the story, a story that seemed to want to try too hard to be more than it was, which is really just kind of a dysfunctional family story mixed with violent, uh, just, with just violence, really. Um... There, there are lots of things in this movie that, that start off that have so many interesting threads that they could have gone down, and yet they just seem to focus more on contrived violence and then throw it in with mommy and family issues and combine it with drugs and then try and combine it with dream sequence, more or less. And, and for me... Every time they tried to switch gears instead of a smooth transition, it's kind of like grinding of those gears instead. And it left me just kind of wanting a whole lot that I never really was fulfilled on. And consequently, I give this one two stars. And that's kind of where I land. So this movie is directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, who recently we watched Valhalla Rising that he did, Nicholas Winding Refn, also did Bronson. And before Only God Forgives, he worked with Ryan Gosling on Drive. And what all these movies have in common is fantastic cinematography. I mean, I'm talking about beautiful cinematography and excellent uses of camera placement, or just, I guess, excellent use of the camera as in camera placement. There you go. That, that makes more sense, I think. But... What all the other ones have that this one does not have is a strong story. All the other ones, well, I mean, Valhalla Rising, uh, I think, is definitely has some very entertaining parts to it. But you look at Bronson, Bronson, entertaining from start to finish. I mean, crazy entertaining, energetic from start to finish. This movie, Only God Forgives, is probably one of the dullest most beautiful, fantastical movie to look at I have ever seen. It is that amazing to watch. It, I mean, just, God, I, there's just these moments where he's walking down, it, it all takes place in Bangkok, and he's walking down this, this hallway, and it's all red. You know, there's just red lights, you know, coming from behind him, and you're looking at this wallpaper, paper, and it's like this red 
burgundy looking wallpaper with the, these kick-ass oriental like gold dragons painted on them. And when you're walking down the, hall, the hallway with them and you look around and there's just so much stuff to take in and look at. But with doing that, there is so much stuff to take in and you have the chance to look at it in detail in every single shot. And in doing that, the movie is super dull. So much, so little happens in such a great amount of time. It's pretty ridiculous. It, it gets to the point where you kind of want to claw your eyes out. Or you, or you kind of like, what with me, I kind of got sidetracked and started doing something else because I was getting kind of bored just looking at all the beauty. And then I'd come, then I'd like get back into it maybe five or ten minutes later and I finished the movie, you know, completely invested in it. I guess with saying that, I give this movie 2.75 because the movie is that, technically, it is fantastic. It just has some great sequences in it where it's it just takes great talent to really, really, really pull it off. And honestly, the one... I mean, they have the characters there. They have an interesting villain. Great actors. I love Ryan Gosling. I, I watched him Lars and the Real Girl over the weekend. And that, that movie right there, that, that can represent his acting technique. Fantastic. You know, everybody in the movie is great. It's just the story is not there. The excitement. I mean, not necessarily the movie needs to have excitement, but there's not really a mystery. There's no... There, there's nothing to really keep you invested. So that is why I give this movie 2.75 out of 5. All right. Well, where do you want to go next, sir? About uh, We Are What We Are. All right. We Are What We Are. 2013 American horror film directed by Jim Mickle. Um, this here is a movie about a family with uh, cannibalistic tendencies. <laughs> um, but for religious purposes. Which is good, right? I mean, hey, you, you've got to have morals, okay? I mean, there, there's always got to be rules to cannibalism. You can't just go willy-nilly. So, uh, all right, so this is a movie about a family who has to, uh, who has some very weird religious practices that include killing and eating and then the con- uh, consuming of human flesh. The there are a couple of girls who are here in in this family and they um definitely seem to be trying it's i don't know it's really kind of confusing whether or not they're actively trying to get away from the family or if they just don't understand or they don't necessarily agree with the way the family's going about it and you kind of seem to be led one way and then kind of the other throughout the whole movie. And then when you've got the big finale happening, you're like, oh, okay, this they must be trying to escape. And then at the end of the movie, you're kind of left wondering, hang on, because it's intimated a completely different way again. This And this is like the whole movie. This is like the, the whole point of the movie is these two girls. This was just a really kind of, I don't want to say a one-dimensional story, but the whole seesaw thing, kind of will they, won't they, I guess, you you know, for, for lack of a better term, on this particular picture, really taxed me by the end of the, by the end of the movie. 
I really kind of felt myself irritated with this story, and I don't know, maybe I was just not in a good frame of mind when I watched this movie. The, where Tim was stressing how good the cinematography was in Only God Forgives, and again, I have to say that it's kind of interesting because where I really liked Bronson, I haven't been so enthralled with Valhalla Rising, <laughs> and I really and I didn't get right there. For me... I really liked the cinematography of this movie. It wasn't enough to save the rating, per se, but I thought that was really kind of the only redeeming quality. I, I, I really liked the framing. I liked the way that the, the contrasts, the, the way the different colors were used. Um, it really made, I think that was really kind of the only thing that, that continued to set the stage for me so that I would want to keep watching to really kind of see how this whole thing played out at the end of the day i'm still disappointed with how it turned out but I, I, at least there's one redeeming quality about it this is by no means the worst movie i've ever seen i really just didn't like it i wasn't really scared mainly because the the story itself doesn't lend itself to being anything that's kind of scary I think it just relies on more or less trying to confuse you than trying to let you be scared by the subject matter being covered so once again on this one two stars for me didn't like it out of the three movies we watched this was my favorite it's a four star movie for me I thought that it was a very interesting way to handle the subject matter. It's a movie about cannibals, yet they made the movie more, uh, I don't want to say slower paced, but they try to fool you. You think it's going to be a safe movie, but it's not. You see things, things happen, things progress in a way that you don't necessarily expect. Whereas I think Matt felt like he was going, it was the, the seesaw effect, uh, to me, I looked at it just the a character, the character progression or degression. You know, it's the two daughters and they have a little son. So you're seeing how the cannibalistic tendencies, how they, the three of them react. You know, the young one in the family, the middle child, and then the older child, who the older child is in love with the the police guy, one of the the, the police, the cops of the city. And there's a lot of like dynamics that are going on that I was very interested. In you have that before they they do a, a big ritual I, on on a Sunday they have to fast for it was like a week or something I don't know and that's where you kind of get the first glimpse of how like the son and the younger daughter really don't want to go along with this like they, that's when they start questioning things because the son is only supposed to drink milk to keep himself full but yet the daughter you know gives him a, a, a handful of cereal in his milk. And tells him to, you know, don't say anything as she takes a nibble of cereal. So she obviously doesn't take the whole cannibalistic ritual seriously. But yet, you know, something else happens at the end that kind of throws you off. But again, to me, I thought that was a character progression. Really, the only time that I felt that I was let down or thrown a wild ball was at the very end. You know, the last five seconds of the movie. And that was pretty much it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, there is definitely some hammy moments. I thought the acting was really good, and to me, that's what really pulled, held the movie together. That was the glue for the movie. 
They have uh, all the kids were fantastic. There were a couple jumps, but the movie wasn't trying to be horrific. Other than it being a a regular horror movie with loud music randomly just to give you a jolt. The jolt scares. That's what's popular in the Hollywood horror movies of today. It's the subject matter. I think that's supposed to be the horror part. Uh, The subject matter not knowing if somebody's going to get killed or not killed or if this is going to happen. If somebody's going to get caught doing something. You know, it's kind of like the tension. And this movie definitely picks up momentum and builds the tension as the story progresses. And, you know, I give it four. I thought it was a good movie. It definitely has its flaws, but uh, as you can tell, it was only enough to warrant to be... uh, It was only enough for one star to be taken away, to be deducted. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Well, all right. Then that leaves us with, last but not least... Trespass, 2011 American thriller film directed by Joel Schumacher. And this one, of course, stars Nicolas Cage and Nicole Kidman. Uh, as a married couple, rich married couple, taken hostage by uh, thieves. Alright, so this movie, I think, would be most aptly surmised by saying... Trying to think of a good cross here. Thinking like... You shit fucking animals! <laughs> I'm thinking like Panic Room meets The Purge kind of deal. The first one, not the second one that's coming out that looks infinitely better than the first Purge movie. So to give you an idea, this is a movie for me that I don't want to say that it tries too hard because this is not a movie that tried too hard. I think this is a movie that just simply had too many things going on. And every time, and it was, it's kind of like, you know, when Shrek and Donkey have their little discussion about layers. Well, you're not getting a parfait this time, Donkey. You're just getting the onion. Because every layer that you peel is just stinkier and stinkier and stinkier. Until you get to this whole uh, unbelievable ending. Two things, there's two redeeming qualities to this movie. Nicolas Cage and Nicole Kidman. Believe it or not, they actually do a pretty damn decent job of acting in this movie. Uh, I've got to give it to Joel Schumacher. He was really able to uh, take this story and take the writing and really get good characterizations made and bring believable, somewhat believable characterizations to this story that keeps trying to get deeper and deeper and deeper on itself. But unfortunately, those two characters are not enough to make this movie enjoyable. I find that by the time you get to the second twist, I guess if you want to call it that, or the second layer, because again, I don't want to spoil anything here, you spend basically the rest of the movie just waiting for the next shoe to drop. And then by the time you get to the ending that's supposed to be explosive and dynamic and really gripping, you just kind of find yourself going, seriously? Seriously? Because these people don't have any way to actually be dynamic. It's really just trying to survive. And there's no real... 
there's no there, there's nothing really there to adhere yourself to these characters and really make you want to care about these characters because they do kind of do a couple of things because with the family dynamic if anyone remembers the ref it's kind of they, they, it's like they kind of sprinkled a little bit of the ref in there in terms of mainly just the family dynamic but these people don't have anywhere to go and after and, and every time a new facade is revealed or, or stripped away you start getting away from characters that have been established and wanting and in any kind of way that you want to root for and instead you're left kind of going what and then really and then they just do it again and they do it again and they do it again and so by the end of the movie it's just kind of feeling like it's just over the top and then truly contrived at that point and then you're left with this just ridiculous denouement and the two characterizations that are brought about by Nicolas Cage and Nicole Kidman, while good, uh, aside from the one line that uh, <laughs> I totally have to agree with Tim about, um, are just not enough to bring it about for me. Um, while this was the one that I, en- I guess, enjoyed the most, it's still not any better than the rest. I didn't like it, so two stars. Been a pretty consistent week for me here at the SLS cast. Two stars for Trespass. So there you go. Yeah, so, okay, so this wasn't... I, I I was surprised because Nicolas Cage's acting was really good. I mean, minus his... When he has a has a freak out close to when all the stuff first starts happening, and you know he's trying so hard to not sound like Nicolas Cage, but it is so obvious that he's trying so hard to not sound like Nicolas Cage that it's kind of funny, and his the line that he screams out when he's... Tied up, you know, you shit fucking animals. Now, what exactly is he saying? You shit fucking animals. Like, you're shitting out animals that are fucking? It doesn't make any sense. And that is kind of uh, really the only two instances where Nicolas Cage had a really hammy moment. I mean, he was really good. And unfortunately, that was the bad part of the movie. That made the movie less enjoyable. Another two, this is a two-star movie for me as well. Because you have... The, the the home invaders reminds me of the Batman goons. You know, oddly enough, very much like the Batman Forever movie, the Joel Schulmacher-directed movie. In fact, I think the masks that the goons wore in Trespass were the same ones that the goons wore in Batman Forever. I think they just took the same ones because they were corny, like the Batman goons, and goofy, and the masks were ridiculous. And they had voices that sounded just like Batman goons. There were so many, um, there were so many things to take in. You know, there were a lot of story plot elements. You have the family confrontation. You have, uh, you find out that there's more to the family than what meets the eye. You have a goon confrontation, and then you find out there's more to the goons than what meets the eye. There's just too much stuff going on. That's really kind of like drowning out the characterization pretty much what uh like you know like what matt said so much stuff is thrown at the audience that whenever the audience is supposed to care for the character you really don't care about the character because everything is provided for you already also there are just so many opportunities for these people to escape and they absolutely are unable to or they absolutely suck I mean, there are so many, like, knives that are nearby that they could have taken. There are so many opportunities where they could have shot somebody 
Or they could have crept up behind somebody without saying something before they shot. You know, just so many opportunities to take care of business and get the hell out of there that it it just got was so annoying. You could you absolutely can create a drinking game to where if to drink to drink a shot at every single missed opportunity, and you would go through multiple bottles of that crown. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I-, I could go on. I'm just looking at my notes. Uh, as like they, whenever the security guard calls, you know, it's totally not shady when somebody answers the phone. Whenever the security guard says, "Sorry, we're we hear your alarm are going off. Are you okay?" and the person says, "Oh, uh, uh let me call you back." That is not shady whatsoever. I'm kidding. It is very shady. Yeah, and then I have here, every time someone is about to die, they pro- they profess or unveil something very important. Every single time. And I wish I had a counter for every time a, go- a gun is held to somebody's head. Because it happens a lot. Two-star movie. Uh, I need not say anything more. All right, well, look at that. We finally agree. Yay! (laughs) All right, so next week's movies are going to be Grand Piano, Lawless, and Drew, the man behind the poster. So, woo-woo! All right, and next week, for real, though, also, since we never did get to it, uh, our bonus segment... Segment three for next week is going to be I'm the only one who hated it. We're going to be bringing you, Tim and I are each going to bring you a new movie that is generally well regarded, either by the viewing audience or and or by critics or both. And it's going to be a movie that I hate and Tim's going to bring a movie that he hates. And that'll be fun. So again, next week for those movies, Grand Piano, Lawless, and Drew, the man behind the poster. And I believe that does bring us to the end. It's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, folks. Well, the music, as always, that you've been listening to has been brought to you by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can check us out at our website, SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even go to Facebook and search the SLSCast there. Subscribe to us on iTunes and or or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And I guess this is it. So this is Matt saying that thanks to Kristen Stewart, I get to say this. It's okay, you know. It's okay to be you. It's okay to just not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Um, talk to you next week. <laughs> I know, I know. All right, we're clear. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.